Hey, we're back. <laughs> we're back. Sorry, what did it beat you to? No, it? you beat me to it. We're back. Wow. It's uh <laughs> it's been a while since I don't know the rest of the song. I don't know that whole song. But it has been a minute. We're back though. We have been uh around everybody. But welcome back to the Patrick Podcast. So glad you're with us. I I hope you've been catching up on all of the previous episodes. But if you're all caught up, you're like, we are ready for more episodes. Friends, I'm excited to tell you that more episodes are here. Here we are. Another episode. And what a great way to come back fully in the mix by having a very special guest Lee Camp, Dr. Lee Camp, extraordinaire variety show host, professor, (laughs) author, (laughs) father, friend, husband, all of the different titles he, he, he has. All the hats. All the hats. All the scarves. Maybe we should change it from hats to all the scarves you wear in life. I don't know. I don't think so. That's probably not the best idea. (laughs) But Lee Camp is here, ready to deliver uh, our first episode back in a while. And you say, where have you been, friend? Well, friend, we've been living life, as I'm sure you have been, too. And so it's been a a fun journey. It's been an interesting fall. And and anyway, the word interesting is also interesting. I mean, because there's so much behind the word interesting that it bears um, explaining sometimes, right? But I won't be doing that for you right now, but. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. But it has been interesting. Everything's been interesting, right? Music, the new music we've been getting, uh, the new shows that have been coming out. Uh, this the new music we've been getting has been interesting. <laughs> it has been interesting. It has been to say, uh, I, I I don't know if we've ever like if if someone said here's what 2021 will be like. But if anything, it's been like a a, a just a chaotic, weird roller coaster that I'm still convinced we're in 2020. Like I don't, I can't believe <laughs> that we're almost. To 2022 like what like what or what anyway so uh it's been a good time the fall we're in a new season it's fall now um and i'm excited for fall i love fall i love fall and spring are my two favorite seasons i'm not a fan of winter or summer but fall i love spring i love um i love sweaters and i love leaves changing and all that good stuff um but yeah so it's been a good season for me i hope it's been a good season for you um i don't know i i love new seasons because they give us an opportunity to change to um shed some things off from the previous season it's just a, a newness that comes with uh entering into a new season so i hope that you're living into that that you're experiencing that that you're saying yes to things that you're taking risk that you're uh that you're just uh, resting and finding times of peace and um, comfort in all of those wonderful characteristics. But yeah, Lee Camp. But before we get to Lee Camp, we must, we have to 
it's in our rhythm to say what's up to Ben. Ben! What's up, Patrick? What's up, man? Hey, you're married. I'm married, and it's awesome. That's right. It, we, uh... And you have a dog yeah. and, a, and a wife in a house. Like, you're, like, doing the yeah. thing. Well, we, we rent a house, but... Yeah. Well, you're in, you're like in, yeah, you're inside of a home. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm hopefully picking up a piano for our home tomorrow. Oh, I got, I scored one for free. I just got to get a way to get it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's great. We, uh, we're living the life. We, <laughs> we had a meeting with a potential financial advisor. Oh, uh, that's this week. so adult of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was very adult of us, but we felt so awesome. We felt so proud because when we got to the point in the conversation where we were talking about just budget and we told him what our weekly uh, spending was, we surprised him <laughs> and he was impressed. <laughs> and we were like, hey, yeah, when you're buying things in bulk and yeah. eating mostly produce and yeah. not eating meat. You save a buck or two. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Now, because, yeah, and for those of you that don't know, I think we've talked about this before, but if you've forgotten, you know, Vin, a uh, Vin, <laughs> because I was going to say vegan, your name is just now Vin, <laughs> Vin now. Benjamin is vegan. Yep. So now, but you're, but, but would you consider yourself like a hardcore vegan at this point? Like, would you never... Uh, you know, have meat, or would, or would there be an occasion that you would? So I, I know vegans so I, of all types. Yeah, I, somebody was asking me, like in in a lot of detail, like what my whole labeling is, and like and the the lines that I cross and things like that. And I realized that I'm actually not vegan. Okay. Um. So vegan community, don't come at me. Uh, <laughs> I just say vegan because it's the easiest way yes, to say it. That's but true. It's more like um, uh, I've started calling it ecotarian. So we make diet decisions based on its uh, its carbon footprint. Yeah. Um, so we we actually eat eggs if they're like local. Uh, like free range farm eggs right. and not like some factory that's, you know, cranking them out. Um, we, we eat honey occasionally, but also like there's not many things that we eat that we right. put honey on. So that, but also additionally, like, um, we used to do the vegan leather thing, but now we're actually back on leather products. Yeah. Um, because, Leather products actually last like 50 times longer than vegan leather products. And so in terms of sustainability, it's uh, way better because, you know, vegan leather, it's nice and all. And it's the idea of it, you know, not using an animal product. That's a nice idea, but I feel like it's more important to buy one product that can last you for 60 years rather than you know, five or 10 of the same product that lasts only five years. You yeah. Know? I think that's good. So, yeah. Hey, I, I think that ecotarian yeah. is what I've called. Yeah. It I like, I like that ecotarian. I like that. Well, I think it's just in good in general practice 
for all of us, even if you're not ready to make the leap um, that Ben is doing. But I think it's important for us all to be conscious in how we're spending our monies on the foods that we eat and the products that we buy. We're, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to like do it per, you know, perfectly, but I think some effort is worth our, our energy. Like, I think that is a good yeah. thing to be moving towards. Right. And it's, it, I will say like one of the, you know, there's different thresholds for people to make changes in their life like this. Like, sure. And I think people, I think that there's a misunderstanding of like certain thresholds to make decisions like this that are actually like really beneficial to both yourself, but also for the earth. Like it, it's really not as hard as you would think. I would say the diet part is probably the hardest part. Yeah. But like, buying plastic free or package free products not hard at all nowadays right probably like five years ago pretty hard but like for instance if you're if you're listening and you're in nashville we actually have what's called refill markets oh and yes that's this right is, uh, this is something that's been like a west coast thing but we actually have them here in nashville now and it's places where you can uh, get things like soaps and detergents and deodorants and toothpaste and things like that. Yeah, um, there's one in East Nashville. Containers. Yeah, yeah, and there's there's one um, on 12th South called Sage Refill that we really like. But like for instance, like you know, if you think if you have like a bottle of soap next to your sink, you just buy a glass bottle for that once, bring it in. You're also saving like a dollar or two per soap bottle because you're not buying the packaging. Um, and, and, and again, like if you're, if you're someone who orders those kinds of products on Amazon, you're reducing the emissions used for delivery as well. And it's just like down the street from us. And so like we'll, we'll go like twice a month and get everything we need and no plastic yeah. involved. Well, and, and if you do that, you won't uh, continue to give money to Jeff Bezos to go up in space again. <laughs> <laughs> right. You'll give it to, to good Nashville. To good Nashvilleans. Running a local business. <laughs> and what's cool about that is like, there's uh, just because of the nature of the business, there's also, also lots of correlations like uh, Sage sells almost entirely local products. Oh, and if there's yeah. Products not from Nashville, it's like a local business in Chicago where somebody's like hand making soaps. So it's like you're contributing to small businesses as well, which I think everybody enjoys doing. Um, and so that's like the one tip that I'll give today of like that that's a very simple and easy change you can make to your to your life. It's it's really not that hard to reduce your own carbon footprint. And that is one easy way is to just buy your hand soap and laundry detergent at a refill market. Yeah, I love it. I think that's fantastic. Cool. All right. So before we get to Lee, I feel like we just, I know we're like this intro. What are y'all doing? Listen, folks, <laughs> it's, it's, it's fine. You're fine. You're driving. You're cleaning the house. It's fine. Music. We have to, we, we're, we're music folks. First off, before I get into too deep into music, I'm just still lamentful that um, there was no Bonnaroo. I've not been to Bonnaroo now. It's been two years. I'm going to forget how to be a festival person if I don't get to a <laughs> festival quickly. I'm losing my, I'm losing, that's what's part of my fun. You're going to show up in long <laughs> sleeves. <laughs> and flannels and be confused and like, what is this? I'm not used to this. Yeah. 
I don't. I, I got to get back. I got to get back to the festivals. Okay, but new music wise, what have you been? What have you been jamming on, Ben? Maybe give us like three or four like albums, artists, something. We or, or any uh, hot takes. We can talk about Taylor Swift and and whatever we got this weekend. Why? I don't. Who wants to hear us talk about Taylor Swift? No one else talks about her. No one. Here's here. (laughs) No one does. You are exactly right. No one needs us. Let's save people that. No one. Go to any (laughs) prominent news source, and their headline this week is Taylor Swift. You know, people are like, you know, who I need to hear from? Patrick and Ben. What are their Taylor Swift hot takes? (laughs) But no, we got a lot of other good artists. Here you go. Hit, hit us with some hit us with some stuff. What you got? Uh, I'll actually start with a hot take because I I've been really let down the last several months. Ooh, I don't think there's a lot of good music coming out recently. Um, but there's some good stuff. Yeah. Uh, but I for the most part I think that uh, I don't know. I feel like people didn't really take advantage of the quarantine time. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, a few good ones. I, I actually really did like the Coldplay album. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I thought it was great. Um, but we're Coldplay stands on this podcast. So, like, yeah, that's we're, true. Yeah, so, like, so, you know. I invite you to come at me with that <laughs> one. Um, I, uh, I have been really, really enjoying. Uh, there's an artist name. I think it's pronounced Upsall. U-P-S-A-H-L. And okay. uh, she just put out an album called Lady Jesus. Ooh. And I'm telling you, it's probably my top album this year. Wow. It's really, really good. Okay. All right. Um, but that's, that's really it. it. That's really it yeah. for you. I was kind of let down by Han's album. I was let down by the War on Drugs album. Um, oh, really? Well, I guess they they yeah, they both they, they both were just like in the pocket albums. Like there wasn't like I don't know. Yeah. It, 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 they didn't it, try anything. Yeah, it was like this is. It's like is, oh, the war on drugs. There's that same guitar solo that's in every <laughs> other song on the last three albums. It's true. We're sorry, war on drugs fans. We're sorry. It's good, but maybe maybe turn on a different pedal. <laughs> this is actually just a part two of that of that last album. They just yeah. He's like, oh, you know what? I have some more tracks from that. <laughs> yeah, it's part two, but worse. Yeah, no. So here's what I would say. I recently went to the Rustin Kelly concert at the Ryman. Now I've never listened to Rustin Kelly at all. I don't. I don't. I don't know much. I just am just. I'm new to the Rustin Kelly um, genre or game. Which is interesting because a lot yeah, of people, I'm not familiar. yeah. So I'll, I'll break. He used to date. Um, oh, what's her face? He used to oh, date. Yeah, Casey Musgraves. Casey Musgraves. That's, That's right. right. Yeah. I am so familiar. what I call his music is adult adult emo music. So it has like this adult emo Nashville music. <laughs> Are you tired of the kids being emo? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't worry, friends. We got we got an adult for you. Yeah. So that's what it is. So 
He has a steel, like as a steel pedal guitar in the band. It's played who his dad plays that. And like the songs kind of have this because it's not country and it's not like a, a, Americana necessarily, but it is like this. It's like it basically is people who were into emo music potentially or not, but it's like it's got this emotion to it. You know, he's got he's had this That's journey. Cool. So it's it's good. So don't hear me say everybody. I'm I'm kind of getting into the rest in Kelly. I'm not here to, you know, like explicitly promote him or anything, but I did I did enjoy the concert. Now I tell you the album and the artist I've been into the most right now, and that's Dijon. The Dijon album, have you listened to that? Oh child. I just got tickets to the third, you know, third man records does these shows and there's at their place. And I just got that and it is, oh my goodness, I'm so excited. I have worn cool. I have worn this album out. And folks, if I would also recommend you listening to the this new album, absolutely, and also watching him do uh, the videos on YouTube because the videos on YouTube, like he he has this electric way about him, like on uh, on camera and even vocally when you listen to it, it's just I I, I love it, I love it, I love it so much. Yeah. So I'm into that. And look, and here's the deal: the we finally got the you know uh, we finally got the Silk Sonic album, and it's <laughs> it's fine. It's what we could expected it to be, and, and and it got some vibes on it. And I'm I'm you know we'll vibe with it. It's fine. It'll be at all your weddings, you know. So it'll it'll be good. You'll you'll have a good time at the weddings this next wedding season. We I'm just <laughs> have they announced uh, who's doing the Super Bowl this year? Uh, I think Dr. Dre is. <laughs> oh, it's like That'd be cool. It's like it's like Dr. Dre and like. A bunch of other, you know how they, you know how they do like. I was hoping they'd do Silk Sonic. Super Bowl halftime show 2020. I'm I'm looking it up right now. That's 2020. 2022. Sorry. Uh, 2022 will be Dr. Dre and Mary J. Blige and Snoop Dogg. What? Are you serious? <laughs> what is this? Oh, Kendrick Lamar. Uh, okay. Eminem. Wow. So it's gonna be it's gonna be Dr. Dre, Kendrick Lamar, Eminem, Mary J. Blige, and Snoop Dogg. It's 2022. Yes. <laughs> it's not 2006. <laughs> like what? I I mean, okay. So I I hope the I hope the no that'll be really cool. Actually, I mean I hope they're ready to to hit the edit the little bleep button. <laughs> I don't like what <laughs> uh, we don't want to see any skin, but you can say all the f bombs you want, <laughs> yeah, uh the other album I've been listening to just over and over, I think I mentioned this last episode, okay, but man, I can't get enough of the new churches album, oh yeah, that's right, churches I love it, that's right, that's right, they had a I new love album it that's right, it's I, so yeah, good, yeah, that's good. Okay, we <laughs> we have talked too much on the intro. Lee, look, we have really appetized this thing out because I have a feeling a lot of you are going to be listening to this for the first time. So here's what we do at the top of the episode. <laughs> you may you may already have skipped, and that's okay. But anyway, thanks for listening. 
continue to support us. I really do appreciate it. Go and follow the Instagram pages. Go and uh, like the podcast on Apple. Share, share, share this with everyone you possibly know. Okay, here is Lee Kemp. Peace. Lee Camp. Patrick Chappelle. (laughs) It's finally (laughs) happening. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe it. This is great. It is great. I'm delighted to get to be here with you. Well, welcome to the show. We're so glad you're here. Thank you. It's going to be great. So uh, those of you who are unaware, this is Dr. Lee Camp. Do you like when people call you? you, Is it true... I've all, I've often heard that like when you first receive that doctor status, mm-hmm. you want people to like say it because like the journey to receive a doctoral degree is so it's so hard. No matter what area it is, like maybe there's easier pathways, but it's it's usually not an easy pathway yeah. to get that to get those like initials. And but then I heard like the the older that one gets, like the more they don't really want people to like overly express that. Yeah, I don't know if that's true or not. You may I don't know where you yeah, fall. Well, What's your? I mean, I don't know. I tend to think that if one is a disciple of Jesus, that you always have to be uncomfortable with such titles. But that should not, of course. Another thing about Christian discipleship is that you're always supposed to be very confessional, which means that I, I suspect that most anyone who's gone through the, the academic hazing that is required to get a PhD has yeah. enough vanity that they at least want it to be recognized. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And so it's like simultaneously you know you don't want people... You're supposed to mm-hmm. not want people to call you a title. That's right. But at the same time, you want them to know that you did all that work. Right, 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 right. You're like, I still, I, I, I don't, but I do, but I that's don't. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, wow. So, so okay. So, so, that, so that's yeah. a question like asking me, are, am I vain? Ah. Uh, yeah. And of uh, course, and the answer, of course, is, well, of course I am. Well, sure. But I try not to be. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, so you uh, are Dr. Lee Kemp. We're <laughs> Please call me Lee. <laughs> <laughs> or Lee for short. <laughs> so that that's great. So now you have, you know, many folks who are listening or, or, or who are listening to this remember you because you were a professor at a university that's here in Nashville, Tennessee, and you've done that work for quite some time. And yes. Then, there are now more folks who are becoming to know who you are because you have your own podcast now, and you've got a variety show that you have been hosting for several years now, and and you've been speaking at even some larger, more notable, at least in certain circles, conferences and things of that nature that has opened, opened you up to a, a new kind of audience that has been, I'm sure, interesting to have. So uh, the question then I'll start with is, you're from Alabama. Yes, Alabama boy. Alabama boy, 16-year-old Lee Camp. Does he, 
does he think that this is where life is going to lead? He has zero idea where life's going to lead. And sorry, everyone, that's my dog Otis that's sitting here by, by me on the sofa. Uh, no, I had no idea where this might lead. Um, and because when I was a boy, I I kind of I was always very fascinated in the interested in the sciences, and so actually my undergraduate degree was in computer science, really? minored in math, and then I did also minors in Greek, and another minor in biblical studies. So. Um, and I started out in engineering, and so I thought I might be wanted to be a physicist or a astronaut or a you know scientist of some sort. But I had had this sort of you know I'm I'm Church of Christ, so yeah, uh, we're very rationalistic. But nonetheless, I had had this sort of childhood experience. I think I was twelve, and it may have even been before I was baptized. I don't remember. But I had this I had this sort of kind of odd calling experience when I was very young. And um so I had always and I won't go into the details there, sure. but but it but it was like um it was always in the back of my mind that there was some sort of more explicit uh form of Christian ministry to which I felt like I had been called and to which I had even assented when I was a boy. And so between my junior and senior year in college, I kind of went through a discernment process and decided that I would not pursue science. And I, I want to I clarify that I think that um, science can be one of the most wonderful and marvelous oh, of Christian callings. Yeah. But that wasn't what I had the sense that I had been called to. And so I let that go and um, then decided to go into seminary, and then one thing led to another. Now, in, in that process, was there... For you, was it um, an experience that ultimately led you to do the, lat- the to continue down this path now of Christian ministry and, and biblical study, or was it a conversation? Like, was there an individual that, like, I sat down with this person, and this conversation is the conversation that really kind of sent me on this new path. Yeah, it, it was both. I mean, I think it was that experience I had when I was a boy, and then that summer between my junior and senior in college was when I decided to test that, if you will, and to do a sort of sense of discernment. And so I sought out conversations with sure. a number of people who knew me fairly well and who knew about uh, Christian ministry and just had conversations with them. And so I got this sort of affirming um, response to those sorts of conversations that helped me make the decision to proceed with it. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess like that, that's something that's, that's so interesting because, I mean, even now here in 2021, you know, that is still a pretty popular, this conversation that we're at least having on the, on the front end, which is about discernment, calling, you know, uh, what... What am I here to do? Like, yeah. what is my vocation going to be? Is these yeah, yeah. words, and of course, like, part of it is it's like those of us who, you know, get to journey to higher education. That's where we typically pick up some of these these words in this language. Yeah. But I'm wondering if you know, as you did that discernment, vocation calling, you know, figuring out exactly what the direction of your life was going to be, 
you kind of remember how it rolled out for you and you're seeing it kind of roll out in, you know, here in 2021 with students that you have, your your own family members and friends, like how do you feel like is do you think that the conversation around calling vocation discernment is the same or different or and if that is some difference in that like what how do you feel like it's talked about now versus what it was talked about yeah. back when you were doing these things? Yeah. Um, I mean, my short answer to your, my most direct answer to your question would be, I, I don't really don't have the slightest idea, <laughs> but that's good. <laughs> yeah, but I think, but but nonetheless, I have come to some conviction about helpful practices. Yeah, in this go. regard. Yeah, and one of the first things that I would I would suggest is that I, I'm I'm very much not in favor of the sort of hyper-Calvinistic God has this one thing God wants me to do or this one person God wants me to marry. Yes. Um, I don't find that approach very helpful. And instead, I I think it's, you know, Augustine who said, love God and do what you will. And Mm -hmm. I think that's the kind of freedom that we're given in Christ. Yeah. And that being said, then there comes the question of, okay, I have this freedom and I have this liberty in Christ. And so what do I do with that? Right. And so then there's that question of discernment about how best to lean into, employ, practice this freedom that we've been given. And for me, it's been repeated instances in my life where I've taken seriously uh, this sort of shared discernment stuff. And so Richard Good, one of my colleagues at school, uh, taught me this uh, probably in the first couple of years that I was a rookie teacher. Uh, The Quakers have this practice they call the Quaker Clearance Committee. Oh, yeah. And what they do is they have people come together who know you well, and you have some question about you're trying to make a decision about, and you kind of lay out for them what you're trying to decide, what for you are major considerations that go into that decision, and they ask you questions. Hmm. And their their job is not to answer the question for you. (laughs) Their job is to give you better questions to ask in making a decision. And I've like literally done this a couple of times in my life where I've invited people in for a Saturday morning and I you know, I wrote out a two-page memo saying this is what I'm dealing with, this is what I'm trying to decide. And they just spent a couple of hours, an hour, hour and a half asking me questions and then we took a break and then they came back and they said, here are the things we heard you say that we think you ought to pay attention to. And so it's those sorts of episodes in my life have been immensely helpful and I think that sort of model that we get from the Quakers holds right. together liberty and common discernment huh. in this beautiful sort of way. Yeah, that's good. I love that. That's I, I think we need to do more of that. And and I've often thought like when I'm making a big decision about life, I try my best to talk to the friends, the mentors, the 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 people who I would call my yes people and who I would call my no people. Hmm. And what I mean by that is like, there are friends, we all have these friends where it's like, if I need someone to hype me up and, yeah. the, and, the, <laughs> and for me, and like, and like I can come with the doubts of the thing, but they're always gonna be like, no, you should totally still do that. Yeah, yeah, right. You should do that. Yeah. <laughs> and you have the other friends who are like, you can be hyped about it. And they're just like, no, they're always saying like, are you I don't think you should yeah. do that. <laughs> So it's like finding, it's like getting those folks in one room together would be so interesting yeah. because, yeah, that would give me an honest, like, otherly opinion about, like, right. 
how might I move forward in yeah. this way? Yeah. <laughs> I do think that there's, I mean, that relates to another sort of uh, practice that I picked up somewhere about um, learning to ask permission to give people feedback. Ah. And so, and I've tried to do this, and I've done it enough that so I have one or two friends that if I start to give them feedback without asking, asking for it, for they'll it. say, you haven't asked me for my feedback, my permission yet. <laughs> like, okay, we're taking yeah. it a little bit too serious here. <laughs> but, you know, but, it, but I find it helpful, for example, let's say a student comes to my office and they've got some sort of grave thing they're, they're grappling with, and... And I'm thinking, you know, I can be thinking in the back of my mind, oh, heck, this is going to, if they do what they think they're going to do, this will be bad news for them. Right. But I try to, I try to take the role of, um, if they don't ask me for feedback, I don't have the, I don't presume I have the liberty to, to give it. Mm. And um, I do try to presume if, one of my kids went to one of their college professors, and they're about to make a decision that I think would be damaging for them. What would I want that professor to do? Right. But what I would want the professor to do is, is what I try to do, and I say, are you open to some feedback? And if they say yes, then that's going to make them more open to hearing what I have to say anyway, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, and so I find that it seems too often in the Christian community, we're too quick to try to fix other people's problems. Oh, yeah. And a lot of times people don't want... I don't want people to fix my problem unless I ask them for help in fixing my problem, right? It just it's off-putting. Yeah. What I want people to do is listen to me. Huh. And and so I appreciate if people will say, "Do you want?" And my wife and I do this now with each other, and we've been doing this for years with each other. Wow. Is that we can listen to each other talk about something, and we'll say, uh, you know, we'll listen and you know express gratitude for them sharing, but we don't presume we're going to get feedback. And then if we if we get to a place of where we think we have something constructive to say, we'll say, are you open to some feedback about that or not? So, so I guess the other side of that is if you're the person that, that asks, are you open for feedback? And if the person you ask it to says no, and then how is – talk about like how that feeling is where it's like I have this input or this potential negative wisdom that could be helpful mm-hmm. – but you don't want to hear it. Do you? What What do you do with that? Yeah. Like, because I feel yeah. like that's the other. Yeah. That's the other side of that is like people would be like, "No, I don't want your feedback." Yeah. It's like, well, and I, okay, the the, the, <laughs> the person who has said that to me several times is my wife, right? <laughs> right, right. And she'll sometimes say, "No, I'm I'm not interested in your feedback right now." Mm-hmm. And I I've learned to receive that as helpful because yeah. it's like that's right. She's helping me keep from stepping into. A pothole, a relational pothole, mm-hmm. by being honest, you know. Right. Because if she's not open to it, she's not open to it, and it's not going to do any good. So right. it's helpful for her to say, "No, I'm not open to that right now." It doesn't mean that an hour from now or next week she might right. be open to it. But right then, maybe what she needs is me to listen and not try to fix her problem. Huh. That's good. Now, so I guess what would be your 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 theory then on why this way, why Christians tend to move in this way of like we because I mean are we pulling? Do you feel like we're trying to pull from someone or some ones in the Bible? Like is that a some is that an example or do or is that just something that we have just lived into because we think that is what it means to be a Christian and living in Christian like communities? Yeah, that's a great question. 
Um, I mean, all I could do was speculate about it, right. but I would speculate that it relates to unhealthy notions of what Christian love means and entails. Mm. And we, I, I, I do think we're rife with unhealthy notions of what Christian love entails. But given that part of what we know it means to be a Christian is to try to help other people, right? then we can quickly presume that I can help you by telling you what you ought to do. And it turns out that a lot of times that's not helpful at all. You know, right. what it is is uh, sometimes, well, I won't have to go into different things it could be, but a lot of times that's not helpful. Right. But we presume this is my best way of being helpful to you is to tell you what to do. Hmm. Now, so that kind of bumps up against a little bit about kind of your, the, the specialty work in which you do, which is... Um, Telling people what to do. So- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit, yeah. But I mean, but also biblical ethics. Right. Like what? Like what is the ethical? That sounds like a. a, a yeah, a, I have a PhD in right. Christian ethics. That's right. right. So it's like so. Yeah. How and did you just like did you just like look at a sorting paper of like emphasis or did you just feel like a as large like yelling from the mountaintops of like oh it's biblical ethics like how did. Because, I mean, yeah, this is kind of bumping up against some of that. But yeah. then how did that even work itself out for you where it's like, oh, this is the emphasis for me? Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a really great question. And I think there are two possible, at least two possible answers to that. Uh, one, the most proximate answer to that would be that my historical experience. And that is I go to seminary, and in seminary, in my Christian ethics class in seminary, I start reading people like Stanley Harawas, mm-hmm. Jim McClendon, John Yoder, and I'm fascinated with their approach to thinking about Christian life and discipleship. And so I go apply for PhD programs with all three of those people, and I get in. I get into a couple of them, and wow. then I go. You know, I go study right. with them. Um, but I have for a long time wondered um, why. You know, for, for those who are unfamiliar, it's a really long process in doing PhD work in the humanities. Um, so, I mean, I did three and a half years doing an MDiv and an MA, and I did five years doing a PhD. And so you can be like a, you know, you could be a surgeon in that period of time. Right. But I'd, I'd do it so that I can, you know... <laughs> Take a job getting paid thirty two thousand dollars my first year out of school with a PhD, and, and so 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 you have to ask yourself the question: Well, why in the world would right. you spend that much time right. doing this? Yeah, and I think for one, it was a sense of calling. Yep. Um, but two, I also think, and and so I really grappled with this when I went through a midlife crisis a number of years ago, and I'm grappling with a number of things. But one of them was. I was feeling a lot of dismay about my vocation at that point, and I was feeling this sort of, uh, why, why the hell did I do all of this? Right. And when it feels at this point in my life like it's been uh, so, I felt so despairing about it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. where I came around to was I needed that much time 
to learn to disentangle myself from deeply unhealthy theological notions that I had inherited. Yeah. And it goes back to, there's a Flannery O'Connor short story entitled, The Life You Save May Be Your Own. Huh. And that's, that's the way I think about it, is that, is that I do hope, and I, and I hear from people saying that my work has been helpful to them. And right. I'm really, I'm always super grateful anytime somebody tells me that. And I don't take it for granted. And I'm always really grateful for that. But I've accepted, really, the person that I've probably really needed to help was myself. Right. And so I went through all of those years of grappling with this stuff. Um, so that I didn't have to be in bondage to things that I was in bondage to mm-hmm. that were not a source of life but were a source of um, sometimes debilitating shame, debilitating self-hatred sure. that was grounded in unhelpful theological constructs. Yeah, and I think that what, what I, and I, that's so good because there is an, an untangling that all of us will need to do at some point. But I do feel like that where I see a lot of things happening today is that people want to untangle and then just throw the untangledness, the untangled thing on the ground. Yeah. And not pick it back up to say, now let us rearrange it to something that is more helpful, more beautiful, more like leaning in these, in this kind of fruit of the spirit kind of directions. Yeah. Because it's not that you are, and in some ways it's like we're going to be tangled in something. Like you're going to be, and another way to put it, you're going to be living some kind of narrative. Like you're going to, that, that, that's just going to happen right. for you. So it was good as like untangle the unhealthy thing, get wrapped up in the thing that is healthy. Yeah. And that is bringing life and that is leading you to ask more healthy questions of the people that you're in relationship with as you try to enhance and grow and strengthen those those relationships. Right. But I mean, yeah, I don't know if you've noticed that, like that, especially working in the university world and even with the multitude of like young adults and, and people who are older, it's like it feels like a lot of people love to do the untangling. Right. And not really do the the you know I don't know if retangle is yeah. <laughs> the way we want to think about it. But I mean, and these are right. and obviously if you're listening, there's other words we could have used in talking about this. But this is where we're at. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the um, we talk about this lo- a lot in higher education. In you know, in, in my college, in my department, um, we talk about deconstruction. Right. You know, and and so what pe- people. Uh, that's one of the things that happens as undergrads. One of the things that happens in seminaries is that it's it's almost inevitable that people go through this very difficult deconstructive process. And one of the things that we try to remind ourselves as faculty is that that is not doing a disservice to help someone go through that process of deconstruction unless you don't help them do the reconstruction. That's right. And to deconstruct someone's set of convictions and then not help them figure out what are the next steps is a cruel kind of thing to do. That's right. And um, so that's why we take really seriously, um, you know, giving people the opportunity to encounter questions that they've not encountered yet Mm -hmm. that are hard to deal with and are hard to process. 
but then help them find new resources and actually what I think is something more beautiful, more rigorous, more constructive for a life of Christian faith than they had previously. And of course, a lot of people don't like that, Mm -mm. you know, because so a lot of people will critique critique theological education and say, well, you're destroying people's faith. Right. And it's like, well, if, you know, when we talk about, if you're, if you're going to equiv- equiv- you know, so I'll, I'll give some specificity, right? <laughs> if you're going to, if you're going to equate some sort of Christian nationalism to their faith that we've deconstructed, it's like, well, that's, that was an idol. That wasn't Christian faith. Right. That was an idol that we tried to deconstruct to try to give, introduce them to a more beautiful form of Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, I don't apologize for that part right. of deconstructing because there are a lot of idols out there and a lot of idols that need to be called out and a lot of idols that need to be named, and then we need to try. And again, it is on us if we don't then turn around and try to help them find uh, that reconstructive move. Yes. Um, but I think both of those, generally speaking, need to be held, held together and that they're both really important. Yeah, I think that's really good. I think that's really helpful. And I think what I see is people, again, it's the, the, the resistance in my mind is because we would rather operate in black and white. It's better to not even do it. It's better, even though the ones that may say, don't do any of this deconstruction, don't do any of this untangling, it's because there is a fear that if you do any, you won't ever be able to reconstruct right. You know, and it's like that. It's oh, it, we can, and and eventually, if you stay tangled up, it will eventually stop working. And then, what I have personally seen, this is not true for everyone. The ones that stay tangled and never go through the journey of deconstruction and reconstructing something will end up being the people that are resisting the whole thing in a very aggressive way. Yeah. So when they're thirty, or they're forty. They just say, "Well, to hell with it. Right. I'm done. I'm done. I'm walking away." And there's no, and there's no coming back. Right. Right. Yeah. It, it's like, you know, it's like. I mean, take one narrow slice of this, right? In theological education. So let's talk about higher biblical criticism. You know, it's like people are afraid of higher biblical criticism questions. Right? Well, who wrote the Pentateuch? It, you know, well, Moses wrote it. Well. That's the traditional answer, but you have some problems with that. It's like, did Moses write the story of his death at the end of the book of Deuteronomy? Right. Um, And so there's all, so it's like the questions that arise that gets dealt with in theological education is not where some some jackass professors decided, let's come up with some questions that will mess people up. They came from reading the Bible. Right. They read the Bible, and then naturally in reading the Bible, they have this question of saying, well, the traditional view is that Moses, Moses wrote all this, but here's, his, here's the story of his death and his burial. Yeah. So what do we do with that? What do we do with it? So, right. or, or, you know, those who say there's zero errors in the Bible. It's like, well, have you read Corinthians? And you see that Paul actually misstates the number of how many died that day that you get in Exodus or Leviticus, wherever it is. And it's like... And there's no evidence in the manuscripts that the number was changed by the... You know, it's like we get these questions from reading the Bible. And if you want to pretend 
and you want this naive, pretend faith that doesn't ask any hard questions, well, you can do that. Sure. But you're just not serving your kids very well. Yeah. And, and what's the reality is that the kids, the teens, the colleges of today are much more thoughtful and are diving really deep into the thing and saying, I'm reading this. This isn't, something's not adding up. Yeah. And whereas maybe in previous years, there wasn't some of that like deep diving. It's like, the reality is that some of these people who are walking away is because they're actually reading the thing very closely and asking really good questions. And when those questions are presented to someone, they are not either, they're either shooed away or they're giving an or they're, or they're giving an answer yeah. that doesn't that doesn't have a whole lot of texture to it. Doesn't have right. any weight to it. It's just another, oh, just forget yeah, about that. Yeah, another huge example that you have of this. Um, this will be my first name dropping of today. But you know, one day I was doing a interview with Francis Collins, who's the head of the National yes. Institutes of Health, <laughs> and we were going to do an interview talking about um, evol- evolution, and creationism, Christian mm-hmm. faith, and so mm-hmm. forth. And so backstage, um, he said, he said, you know, what happens is that the fundamentalists who insist upon young earth creationism and they insist upon the only way you can respect the authority of the Bible is young earth creationism and rejecting the theory of evolution. He says, they tell young people that. And then their young people go and take biology 101 in college. And they realize, oh, there's all sorts of evidence for the theory of evolution. There's all sorts of evidence that humans evolved like all the other species. Mm -hmm. And so they remember what their fundamentalist preachers told them, that you have to choose between the theory of evolution and the authority of the Bible. And they say, okay, well, I'm going to choose just like the preacher told me to, and they choose science. Right. And, And he said, they are destroying people's faith. Yeah. And you can see I'm getting uh, you know, energy behind this, but it, it really ticks me off. Yeah, right? For the right. people who think they're defending the Bible and defending God by setting up these false choices people have to make, and but what they're doing is they are subverting the faith of our young. And there's actually all sorts of beautiful ways to understand the questions that scientific consensus is raising and traditional Christian theology. It can be done, and it is being done. But if you set up these false sets of choices and you tell young people this, you're the ones that's subverting their faith, not the scientists. No, no, no. That's right. Um, So I got preaching there. (laughs) That's good. That's good. But it does make me (laughs) preach. (laughs) (laughs) That'll preach, yeah. So uh, the other... so. uh, I'm wondering, I'm, I'm trying to think about how I want to take us next, is you mentioned you went through this um, midlife crisis moment that, that many folks will go through in their life, or most will. Um, and so I'm wondering is where does the creation of your variety show that's known as, this name, Tokens, where does that fall into this trajectory of your life like that started how many years ago that started in 2008 so i started really thinking about it pretty hard in 2007 Mm -hmm. um and then we started doing it in 2008 so that came that came the start of that came five years prior to what i kind of mark as my you know midlife stuff but that being said I, i i did at the time I was going through a difficult 
time of learning some things about myself and learning new practices and new ways of living that were really important to me. And part of that process was discovering that I had suppressed certain parts of myself. And yeah. that, that's one of the, I loved my graduate school experience. It was wonderful. But one of the things that graduate school does is it makes you overly serious. You know? Yeah. Or, or I should say it makes many of us overly yeah, serious. Right. And it made me overly serious. And, um, you know, you, you, start to, you start to take yourself too seriously. And I had done that in many ways. And so during this kind of, this own kind of difficult time in, the, you know, around 2006, 7, 8, um, I, I started remembering how much I love music and how much I love, I, you know, I, I entertained someone when I was a kid in high school and I was in a band when I was in high school. And what was the name of that band? I don't even remember the name of our band. I don't even know if we ever had a name of our band. But, you know, we, we, we would play a lot of the kind of southern rock kind of stuff yes. and The Who and Leonard Skinner and yes. ZZ Top. And you've not seen anything that you've seen me sing Sharp Dressed Man, Patrick. Well, it's just funny that, like, the kid, that, yeah. that that was like the songs you were covering. Like, that's just the, those are like epic bands yeah. to cover. And like, here's this. Every girl's crazy about a sharp dressed man. And just the clanging, you can, you can hear banging. the banging, and the, you, just, you can hear it. You can hear it. The Beatles, we did the Beatles. I never did understand how they. Um, what's the one about the girl dancing from the Beatles? Um, oh, oh goodness, I can't remember. But I never could understand why you know in a, in our church setting where we could not go to the dance and or go to the swimming pool, but we would sing the Beatles song about the girl dancing and getting excited about the girl dancing. Why don't they let us do that when they... I'd rather you sing about that than sing about Jesus with instruments. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right. <laughs> Where were we? So oh, anyway, yeah. the, the, so, yeah. so anyway I, I realized I had, I had suppressed some of these parts of myself, and, um, and so I had this kind of crazy idea about... Uh, I was, was, at the time, was a big fan of Garrison Keillor's Prairie Home Companion. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, so we had this funny, ex- this wonderful experience... New Year's Eve, I guess it was January, th- December 31, 2016, at the Ryman. And he was doing one of his big shows, New Year's Eve. And it was Old Crow Medicine Show was there. Um, Susie Bogus, uh, Cowboy Jack Clement, Emilio Harris. And it was a wonderful, wonderful night. And so I thought, I would lo- what would it be like to do a theological, theologically oriented show like this? Yeah. So I wrote Garrison Keillor a letter asking him, telling him about my idea, to which he never replied, <laughs> which is probably just as well. And uh, but anyway, one thing led to another, and so by 2008 we were doing it, and I never, you know, I never thought it would um, quite connect with people like it has. Yeah, it's been it's been a really fun journey to or thing to watch, like as it went from like a, a this small venue in you know on this university campus to now being at the Ryman Auditorium and traveling in different parts of the country it's just like it's been and being on the radio like on the radio yeah yeah it's it's fun yeah and yeah like the so starting end of 2020 we started being on Nashville Public Radio every Sunday Sunday at two o'clock everybody tune in yep um and 
one of the things that's fascinating about that is that I'd kind of given up on public radio, and, and then we kind of fell into this opportunity. Um, but one of the things I've loved about this partnership with Nashville Public Radio is that when they, um, the vice president of content, was listening to the first couple of episodes, and she wrote me this email, and she said something like, and I'll tell you something I never thought I'd tell you, and, and frankly, I was afraid of when we first started talking. And she said, but you should be more theological, not less theological. <laughs> And so, and, like, and, and, and yeah, I know it. And, and and obviously, she wasn't inviting me to preach on public sure, radio, and right, she wasn't right. inviting me to evangelize. But what she was inviting me to do was to be myself. Yeah, and that's good. and to say this is the way you think, and this is the way you look at the world, and so look at the world. You know, do what you want to do. And it was this. I felt very honored by the kind of trust in that. Yeah. And um, so it's been it's been fun uh, to get to do and. Um, We'll keep going at it and see what happens. Yeah, because now it's like it's a, it's a whole brand now. Like it feels like it's expanding from just like this show to now you have this website that hosts blog content and other you know and other recommendations, and then now you even got a podcast. Yes, yeah, we'd love for people to tune into the podcast. Yeah, that podcast podcast radio stuff has been really fun because I I love one of the ways I love to learn is to read a book and then talk to people about their book. Right. And um, conversation is one of my key learning areas. And so I love that kind of stuff. And I love getting to talk to really interesting people. And mm -hmm. um, with the with the public radio thing, we get access to people that we probably wouldn't get access to otherwise. Yeah. And so it's fun. Yeah, that's really good. So, what, so in the journey of kind of now doing what we're doing right now in podcasting, you know, people often will – We'll say, like, oh, who's your favorite guest? I'm not going to ask that because, like, <laughs> they're all my favorite guests. Like, yeah, I mean, they're, they're on right. my show. So it's yeah, like yeah. they're my favorite now. But I guess, like, what now that you've kind of officially been, like, sitting in front of people, interviewing them, having conversations with them, what have you learned about that process of interviewing and conversation that you may not were aware of until you start doing things like interviewing folks for a podcast? Yeah. Um. Yeah, I've I've tried to become kind of a student of the interview, the the art of the interview, and I I still don't know that I'm good at systematizing how I go about that or thinking about how I do that. But I think that generally speaking, um, it's crucial for the kind of interviews I'm doing to honor the guest by knowing what they are arguing and what they are saying and know it really well and try to understand it really well. And because people know, and, and I've, and I've done it, you know, I've had a, I, I always try to read whatever the latest book is that we're talking about, right. which takes time. Yeah. But the interview difference is immense depending upon whether or not I've really read the book or not. And a few times, you know, and there's not been very many, but a few times I haven't read their book, and I know, you know, it just wasn't as good an interview. <laughs> so one, knowing their stuff. And right. Then, and then two, I think there's an emotional, there's a level of emotional connection that's crucial in an interview, and it's it's learning to pay attention to people yeah. and trying to uh, put myself in their shoes and... Think about how 
I guess one way to think about it is that I like to try to set people up so that they can do and say what's most important to them to do and say. Yeah. And because that matters to people. Yeah. And so usually people respond pretty well to that. Yeah, and I think that it's like that's a that's a lesson for any of us as we have conversations with people. Maybe we don't treat our friends and family or coworkers like we're interviewing them for a podcast, but these lessons that we're talking about are things that are good for every day. Right. I feel like my my level of how I even do any conversation now with anyone because I do a podcast has heightened because now I'm I'm truly actively listening. Right. And like, okay, how is this not not to like move the conversation, but like what are they saying that 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 maybe they want me to go a little bit deeper with? That they maybe that if I say, oh tell me more about that, that we'll get to somewhere really interesting. Right. You know? Um, and sometimes you hear that and it's, it's so interesting, people will be listening to this show and to your shows and whatever, and will will be saying like Oh, why didn't you ask about that? Like, why yeah. didn't you should have stayed there? Like, right. why didn't you follow up on that? And it's like, right. and then and then because I've I've gotten that feedback. People like, you should have went more with Adam with this thing. And I'm just like, ah, oh, well, I guess the moment didn't feel like that's where we needed to yeah. go. But I can I see that. I, I hear yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, and there are some, and I I it's, this is a really interesting conversation because I I, I think. When my boys were uh, finishing up high school or early, I think I think with one in particular, when he was finishing high school, I tried to have lunch with him once a week, and I would try to. I, I started realizing that if I will think through a good few number of questions, not many, just one or two, right, that is an open-ended question, and I ask the question, and I shut up. It's amazing what they would tell me. Yeah, and um, and so learning to ask good, open-ended questions, I think, is gr- key for human relationships and friendships. Yeah, and that's right. And you know, there's a, there's a, a a good friend of mine. I, I forget who the Mennonite was. Uh, the line, gave me this line from a Mennonite who said something like. Um, listening to someone is the closest thing to loving them or something like that. Right. And so learning to listen is a, is indeed an act of love. That's really helpful. Hmm. Yes, it is. So now speaking of, you know, as you were talking about your interviews with people who have written many of books and things of that nature, you yourself are an author too. And your last book, Scandal, Scandals. Scandalous. Scandalous Scandalous Witness. Scandalous Witness. That's the way Laura has taught me to say it. Scandalous. Scandalous Witness. witness. (laughs) It's in which, you know, is kind of a book that came at, uh, I remember when you were in the process of this book, and it kind of just, we didn't know, in some ways we knew, but we didn't know, like, man, that book came at such a perfect, the timing of it was was perfect um, because it's this political manifesto. And so I'm, I'm curious, like, for you, as you kind of sit kind of with this book now, it's been out for, um, uh, all. Well, I mean, it's been out since 2020. It came out in yeah, March of 2020. March 2020, yeah. So with that, like, 
and this is not your first book. You've written a, you've written a you know another book, and and I'm sure that you've it's got my third book, third book, right? But no one read the second book, so it's <laughs> like my second book. But do you think people now are reading the second book because they love this third book? A few, yeah. <laughs> a few. More people should have read the second book, I must say. Yeah. The but second book was good. It was good, if I it may say It is that. good. It is good. <laughs> it's like a, it is currently still good. Um, so definitely check but those out. But so few people know out. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, what, what's kind of been your... Um, what is it like for you, the writing process? What do you what, what do you enjoy? What do people what do people not understand or don't or don't think about when it comes to the writing process? And even with with the the with this newest book, this political manifesto, like how has it how have you heard people receiving it and and what has been some of the interesting things that you kind of glean from it now yeah. as you kind of sit with it? you know, for this time now, and as you think about maybe in the future of writing, like what comes next? Yeah. Um, well, just you asked about the, the practice of writing. I love the practice of writing. Um, it's really hard work, um, and I do it slowly, but I love it. I, and it's I love the craft of words, mm-hmm. and I love what one can do with words. And it's a it's a lovely process, and for me, it's a sort of it's a deeply formative process, and it shapes me. And sometimes sometimes it can be giddy, hmm. and sometimes it can be deeply emotional. And you know, I'm I'm fairly sentimental, and I I can be pretty emotional. But I mean, I've had times when I'm writing where I end up sobbing. You know? Wow! And <laughs> because I just you know. <laughs> Um, because ideas matter, hmm. and ideas, um, I don't understand. You know, I have very, I can't understand people who don't take the life of the mind seriously, hmm. because it's like, you know, we're all walking around every day, acting out of ideas that we're carrying around with ourselves. Yeah. And so a lot of people want to seem seem like they're they're okay living their lives, not thinking about the ideas by which they are living their lives. And it's like I don't understand that. And so it feels like a privilege to get to do writing, and it feels like a privilege to get to investigate ideas, and to try to help propagate ideas and constructs and convictions that I think can be truly good news for the world. And so it is a sort of devotional experience. It's a deeply Transformative experience, oftentimes an emotional experience, and I love I love getting to do it. Yeah, that's great. And then, like you, you know, how have have you feel like this this newest book has been received? Like, what do you? What's yeah, been so, the interesting kind of commentaries. You've yeah, received? I mean, on the on the whole, it's been received quite well, um, and it, um, you know, like. Anytime you talk about that kind of stuff, you're going to have people that get bothered with you and annoyed with you. But, um, and I, and I'll have to, you know, if anybody goes to Amazon and they see my one one star review on there, you'll, you'll see the one that still rattles in my brain, and and it rattles in my brain because I think he was unfair and I think he misrepresents yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. And Amazon doesn't give you a chance to 
Actually, it, they used to give you a place of where you could respond. Right, and now they don't. And I and I responded. Yeah. And then I looked two months later, and it was gone. And then you can't do that anymore. Wow. And and so there's this sort of struggle of the process of feeling like sometimes people misrepresent you. Um, and you think, why why did you spend, dude? You're a and I I you know I looked the dude up. He's a smart dude. <laughs> and and uh, it's like, but why did you spend that much time ripping my book up? <laughs> And but, misrepresenting me. But here's the thing, though. Like, I, I, I take this, you know, this is what I, I, I say about even, you know, podcast reviews and, you know, and getting a one star. One stars to me are great. Because <laughs> that means that, like, you're doing something and it's not just my friends who are liking it. Right. Like, That's someone right. listened and was saying. And they cared enough to say, this is crap. <laughs> this is terrible like <laughs> yes like. well and, and and now that you say that i mean in august i got to do this interview we haven't released it on the podcast yet but i got to do an interview with ben cohen of ben and jerry's ice cream oh yeah that's right that's right and yes. he's he was delightful and wonderful and we had so much fun but i asked him because you know he gets critiqued just upside oh, one I'm down sure. the, down the other and so i said something like i asked him i said how do you handle critique and criticism and he said well, I expect critique. And he said, I've come to realize that if no one criticizes what I said, then it didn't need to be said and I was wasting my time. Wow. And that was like a new gift, yes. you know. Yes, that's a gift. Yeah, it really is. Wow. Okay. All right, look, let's let's do some final round of questions All right. and then uh and then we'll kind of See where that takes us before we uh, get out of here. Okay, number one, what's something people seem to misunderstand about you? Um, oh, I don't, I, I mean, one that pops in my head, which it may or may not be true, but I, I have seen on more than one occasion through the years this sense of dismissal of stuff that I'm saying under the rubric of he's liberal. Mm. And, and I always laugh and think, no, actually, I'm very conservative. <laughs> because I mean, take for That's example, right. you know, you, you know, take for example, you know, one of the things I've written about a lot is Christian nonviolence. Mm -hmm. It's like Christian nonviolence is not liberal. No, that's what the early church said for three centuries. It's what all the people for those of us from churches of Christ, all the all the all the all the early leaders of churches of Christ and disciples of Christ in the in the 19th century believed in Christian nonviolence. And if you if liberal equals changing the tradition, then you're the liberal, right? And I'm the conservative. <laughs> I'm the conservative. <laughs> and so it's frustrating to see people use that as a way to dismiss someone. Mm -hmm. it, it feels like a sort of way to avoid really taking seriously what somebody's saying, and and that happens with the label conservative or liberal, oh, yeah, or all absolutely. sorts of labels, right? We label people so we don't have to take what they're saying seriously. But yeah. that's one of the things I've experienced sometimes with myself. That's good. What are a few of your favorite quotes? Well, one that everybody knows that knows me at all is uh, Irenaeus, second century, glory of God is a human being fully alive, mm. uh, which I think is beautiful and wonderful. Uh, I, I have a number from um, Dag Hammarskjöld, who was the great Secretary General of the UN in the 20th century he has a beautiful book called Markings, and it, it's filled with all sorts of aphorisms and lines. But one for for him, from him is, 
Your responsibility is a two, T-O. Your responsibility is a two with a dash after two. Your responsibility is a two dash. And then he says, you can never save yourself by a not two. Mm. And I love that vision, right? The point of life is what are you living your life for? Right. What are you living it towards? Not what am I not supposed to do? And yeah. that in one, two little phrases, he he gives you this terribly helpful, constructive vision of human life. Wow! And he he's filled with all sorts of great lines like that. That's great. Ooh, what are some albums everyone should listen to? Oh, well, I mean, everyone should spend a lot of time with the greatest hits of Don Williams. Oh, okay. The greatest hits of Merle Haggard. Even though the great Haggard is deeply problematic from a theological perspective on a number of his songs, mm-hmm. but you know it's just he's Merle, um, and the greatest hits of the Eagles. Um, I just like all that old that old stuff. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Maybe that, that, that's a good that's a good thing. We should spend. Go revisit some of those old, like the old, what is now what we consider old albums. Like, they were not always the old albums, but now they're becoming the older or the old albums. That's good. Uh, What will always make you laugh? Um, My boys make me laugh, and Laura's laugh, when she's really tickled and she laughs big, and she loves to laugh and she laughs a lot, then that makes me laugh. That's good. And the sonic logo at, <laughs> at the end of our podcast, which is our producer's two little kids, I still laugh at it every time I hear it. <laughs> That's great. Uh, one or two books people should read. Um, I mean, I don't know if everybody should read this or not, but I think if you're a white southerner, you ought to read um, Brother to a Dragonfly by Will Campbell. Yeah. It's the only book I think I've read. I think I've read it four times, and I cried every time I read it. And I knew Will, and he was a wonderful human being, but that's a beautiful, moving uh, book. And I think everybody ought to read um, Wendell Berry's Jaber Crow, which I love. Yeah, has some incredible passages in it. I think everybody ought to read Leo Tolstoy's "The Kingdom of God Is Within You," which mm. is a radical. You know, Tolstoy was a radical, so-called radical, right? Nineteenth-century Christian. A lot of people don't know he was a Christian. I mean, and he's considered a, uh, you know, according to the judgment of Russian Orthodoxy, he was a heretic. But um, and and he doesn't hold to some of the tenets of Orthodox Christianity. But some of his critiques of the Christian tradition are devastating critiques of the way the Christian tradition was being lived out in Russia in the 19th century, which very much relates to the way it's lived out in America, uh, are devastating and mm. I think really important. Mm. What was the name of that one again? The Kingdom of God King, is Within You, the kingdom of God Leo Tolstoy. You. That's good. Okay, and if you had to leave Nashville forever... What would be some of your must your must go to places or things to do? Like what so, like you... things I get to do one last time in uh-huh, Nashville, and that's it. Like you're leaving Nashville, 
You all can't, re- you can't return. Wow. What's going to be some of those last spots? Goodness gracious. <laughs> well, I would spend time at Radnor, at Percy Warner. Um, I would spend time at the Ryman Auditorium mm-hmm. and downtown wandering around. I would spend time at Martin's Barbecue, the Greenhouse Bar, yes, uh, and a number of the craft breweries. I would spend time um, visiting my grandparents' house on McGavick Pike in Donaldson. I would spend time at sitting in the church building at Donaldson Church of Christ where I preached for three years and grew up some in the West End Church of Christ where Laura and I got married many years ago Um, and the Otter Creek old building and the Mm -hmm. Otter Creek building in in Brentwood I would spend time wandering around the Lipscomb campus um which is probably the other than the homes I've lived in is the geography that has defined my life more than any other geography because I spent more time in that space than any other given space, you know, 27 years now, if you count my undergraduate years. Wow. Um, so I, yeah, I would, I would just spend a lot of time in being in places that have shaped me, formed me, and um, out of which I've known pleasure and pain. That's great. And then last question, what's one of the keys to a good life? Well, Alistair McIntyre, moral philosopher, he says that um, a good life is defined by seeking the nature of a good life. Mm. And I kind of like that. I think that's true. That's good. That if I'm asking the question and then taking seriously, trying to find answers to the question of what does a good life entail, then that has the highest odds maybe of any other question of leading me towards a life that I can call good when I'm done with it. Yeah. All right. Brother Lee. Brother Patrick. Thank you. Thank you. It's been good to be with you. We'll see you all soon. Peace. Peace.